0: Heavenly Father, that you would make us one as you and Jesus are one. In his name, amen. you just had your service bulletin this morning looking at the gospel reading, uh, it makes zero sense. It doesn't make any sense at all because it's picked up at the latter third of Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the night that he's been handed over to suffering and death, and it's about to be the time for him to be arrested when Judas comes and kisses him. And so in his final moments with the disciples, he's done some teaching in chapter 16, but then he gets to chapter 17, and what does he do? He begins to pray. Uh, Pray so that the disciples can hear him praying and hearing a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. Uh, A prayer that if it were uttered in our presence, we would probably listen very closely to. (laughs) Worth listening very closely to. And so how are we to make sense of what this passage is is saying? I mean, there are a lot of these and a lot of thems. I mean, who are these people? And what is the overarching theme of what Jesus is trying to say to us in the midst of this prayer to his Father? Well, you don't have to look too closely to see that the passage is about unity. right? Not just unity between God the Father and God the Son, where the Father and Jesus are one and Jesus is in the Father. But also that we might be one. So when Jesus refers to these, chapter 16 tells us that these are the disciples. And his prayer for the disciples in chapter 17, beginning with the 17th verse, before we get to our verse 20, Jesus prays this for them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. But then he says, I also pray for them. I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those, us, those who will believe in me through their word. That is you and me. That Jesus is not just praying for his disciples, but he's praying for us as well. That the apostles might go forth and preach the word, not simply their word, not their opinion, but the very oracles of God that has been given to them by Jesus, whom the Father has given to Jesus. The word of God that goes forth and goes out. And so those who come to believe on Jesus Christ as a result of the ministry of the apostles, us, Jesus is praying for them too. And there's a a doctrine in the church called apostolic succession. And you normally only hear about it when bishops come around. And normally they're about 90% wrong. And what it is is that many people will articulate it as... The laying on of hands from bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop. Well, historically, we can't trace that back. Uh, There are lots of significant holes in that. And so, if that's the case, how could it be that? But in fact, we hear it this morning in John 17, that apostolic succession is the transmission of the gospel from generation to generation. We stand in apostolic succession when we pass on the gospel message to others, Because God has children, not grandchildren. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, "...now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received." that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This passing on of the gospel, the very word of God to successive generations, is absolutely key to the idea of unity. Not just the unity between Jesus and his people, Jesus and you, but also our unity with one another. Well, how does this happen? Well, firstly, we have union with Christ. We do read in verse 20, for those who believe in me through their word. Salvation is of first importance if you want to have union with Christ. You must know the Lord. Jesus used the example of being the vine and the branches. St. Paul talks about marriage being an image of God, that the two have come together to the point that they can't understand one another or know one another apart from the other. Uh, The two wills have become so commingled. I mean, you've, you've been in this spot in your relationships, especially in marriage, where someone will come to you and say, how would you like to go fishing this weekend? Your heart says yes, but you stop and say, I don't think so. Why? Because you and your spouse are one. You understand the nature of your spouse and you're willing to sacrifice yourself for them. Elsewhere, Paul talks in Ephesians 2 about that we're we're stones, living stones being built into a, a spiritual temple. The very pinnacle of God's creation, his church coming together. Jesus Christ himself being the very foundation. There's a big difference between being a stone in that magnificent building and simply being a stone in the pile next to the building. Knowing Jesus Christ and him knowing you is the first step in unity. Not just unity with him, when we have unity with Jesus, we have unity one another. Now you may say, how can that be with a church so divided between denominations and structures and doctrinal issues? But even on a more personal level, You have loved ones, your parents, your children, uh, your friends, uh, other close family members, co-workers, whoever it might be, where because you know the Lord Jesus and they know him not, there is a glass ceiling. You can feel the gap between you and them. Why? Because you two don't share the most significant and important thing in your life. You don't share that which gives you your own identity, which defines who you are, Jesus Christ. And so if you don't share that with somebody else, you may know intimacy at a certain level, but you'll never know spiritual intimacy. You'll never know the oneness that Jesus and the Father have or that you and Jesus have. What does this look like? does it play itself out practically in the life of the church? Later on, we're going to sing the great hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. And there are some hymns where I sing them, and you know, you're not just singing, you're actually reading the words, and often there'll be hymns that just, God speaks to me through them, and I become so caught up in it, I can't even sing anymore, but uh, I like Onward Christian Soldiers, but there's a verse that stops me. And it's because I wonder, am I singing a lie? We are not divided. All one body, we. United in hope, doctrine, and charity. Hey, was the author writing in a cave? Does he not see the church? Right? I mean, how can he say that we are not divided? But that's because... We have the mindset of the church being some sort of organizational unity. We're caught up and we've been taught the idealism of the ecumenical movement that says real union, real unity manifests itself in a uniform of structure. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not come and create the church so that we could be under one organizational umbrella. I love what Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, it was never Christ's design to set up a conscience-crushing engine of uniformity. The body of Christ, his church, is not made up of denominations, of dioceses, of presbyteries, Christian mission societies. It is made up of the saints of God from who he knew before the foundation of the world, who are redeemed by his blood, called by his spirit, and made one with Jesus. That is what the body of Christ looks like. And the reality is that we are one in Jesus Christ regardless of what our our structures say. You know, it's been said that the world continues to go round. Uh, Well, my grandfather said, you know what makes the world go round? And I said, what? And he said, favors. That's what makes the world go round. Uh, But that's not true. Uh, It really is true that love makes the world go round. And it's the love of God for those who have not come to know him yet. And as he's building this great spiritual temple of his church, it's not until the pinnacle is made, when, when when finally they're able to cap it off, The high point of his creation is it all finished. And so the world continues to turn so that others might come to know Jesus Christ. Through our word, which is the word of God, our testimony concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, that testimony is what helps create unity. Every person that believes in Jesus Christ is built into the great gospel unity and you will never see the church as a whole while there is one soul left unsaved for whom Jesus shed his precious blood. If you want to build up the church of Christ, if you want to see unity in the body, then go out and declare his word. Tell others of his grace and mercy as God has given you the ability often when I'm in public uh, and I have my collar on somebody will inevitably come up to me very excitedly and say oh I'm an Episcopalian which normally is a warning Uh, but uh, but I will say that is marvelous praise the Lord but what do you know of Jesus Christ now if they're Christians they rejoice with me uh, that the gospel is shared Uh, if they're not they look at me like a dog looking at a clock uh, confused. The worst kinds are the ones that say, and they say this openly, I'm a Whiskapallian. Oh, brother. What of Jesus Christ and his shed blood? Are we parts of that great unity? There's the question. It's not this morning, are you members of a Christian church? You may say, I was baptized a Presbyterian, or I was confirmed an Episcopalian, but that's not true. You were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ and you share in his resurrection. You confirmed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by standing up and declaring your faith in him. Your name is not denomination, your name is Christian. You may say, well, I belong to an orthodox and evangelical church, therefore I'm a Christian. But that kind of talk is a statement rooted in our flesh, in the old Adam talking. If you were to say, I have received eternal life for I have believed on the Lord Jesus. For by his great love and mercy on the cross, the Father has given me to him. Being one, being one with Christ means you are one with one another. Don't look for outward things memorial plaques, church registers, but look for the very bond that is written on our hearts and souls. I'd love to see this morning, I don't do this often if you would humor me with this, but I'd love to see a show of hands of how many of you are here at the advent but did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. Would you raise your hand? My friends, look around you. That is the body of Christ. This is what helps make the Advent the Advent. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm a Methodist and I married a Catholic, so this was the compromise. (laughs) I ask you, what is it that caused you to stay in spite of your different backgrounds and persuasions? It is the very word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he and he alone that has saved you and made you one, and why you have found a home here. Our liturgy, our corporate worship, all points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. If the focus ever becomes something or someone other than him, his cross and his resurrection, we have lost our unity. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't care about our history and heritage. Far from it. We are committed to the prayer book and the articles of religion. We are an Episcopal church in the best sense of the word. But we ultimately find our unity in Jesus Christ, and that manifests itself in who we are and how we do mission and how we do ministry. That we are all one is not just a pipe dream, it's a promise. How many prayers has Jesus ever prayed that were in vain? How many of Jesus' prayers go unanswered? None. Jesus' prayer that we might be one with Jesus and that we might be one with one another is not in vain. If you want spiritual unity this morning, we first have to begin by asking where we stand spiritually. Have you been born into the family of God? Have you been washed with his blood? Have you passed from death to life? Are you alive in Christ? Does God dwell in you and do you dwell in him? Never mind the obvious differences that we have. Because if you are in Christ and I am in a Christ, we cannot be two, we must be one. So brothers and sisters, let us love each other fervently. Let us live together as those who are going to spend eternity in heaven together. Let us help each other in our walks with the Lord. Let us aid each other in every holy and spiritual enterprise that furthers the kingdom of God. Let us chase out of our hearts everything which would break the unity which God has established. Let us cast up off from ourselves every false doctrine, Every false thought of pride, enmity, envy, bitterness, that we whom God has made one may be one before men as well as before the eyes of the heart-searching God. Want to know unity this morning? Unity with God is the first step by becoming one with Jesus Christ and then knowing the unity in him You will find unity in one another by him and him alone. Amen.